0: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 15, where you heard the first half of my conversation with Jim Clementi. In this half of the interview, Jim focused mostly on victimology and started asking a lot of questions about the crime scene. And we had a very in-depth conversation about the blood spatter on the chair, which is where we left things off so it's been two weeks there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of the discussion i think mike on the fan page has kind of moved beyond just that episode yeah definitely so i think we probably have a wide variety of questions and we are joined by liz rose today so she's gonna help us clear a few things up from our last episode so all that being said let's go and get started all right man
2: You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures.
0: Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com.
1: Okay, first things first, a couple of weeks ago in our Friday follow up episode, there were some questions that were really directed towards Liz, and Liz was unable to be with us and I got a few of those things wrong, and so she's here now so she can correct some of those so Liz, the first thing was there was a question about whether or not your family had a maid or anything that works in the house. I said I was not aware of that, uh, but you later informed me that you did. so can you fill us in a little bit on that?
2: Yeah, we had had the same um housekeeper for a couple years, maybe two or three. But yeah, uh, she was supposed to come clean, I think, the Friday before all of this happened, and uh, she didn't end up showing up.
1: Okay. And did you tell me too that you had some problems with the maid at some point?
2: Uh, Not her. I'm pretty sure it was her daughter who ended up um, making off with an item from my bedroom.
1: Okay, so that is interesting. So there was a maid, you said she was supposed to show up the Friday before your dad was murdered. She didn't show, and then in a previous event, you said was her daughter was her daughter just helping her clean or why was her daughter in the house?
2: Yeah, sometimes she'd come help her clean and uh I guess she came on that one occasion. It wasn't frequent.
1: Okay, and something came up missing from your room during that that time. Right. So was any of that information ever given to the police uh, regarding your dad's murder, not with the the previous theft? But uh, did did you guys let the police know that there was this, this housekeeper that didn't show up, any of that stuff?
2: I never told them myself, and I'm not sure about my mom.
1: Okay, well, that's something that we should definitely look into a little more. Did your mom find it odd that the housekeeper didn't show up that Friday, or was that kind of normal for her to miss days?
2: No, I don't think that was the norm for her and i think she ended up moving to austin after that
1: interesting okay well we will definitely look more into that and then the the other issue i wanted to correct is i had said something about the police and i think that was during my conversation with jim clementi that the police had come back to your parents house uh, a few months after the murder and took pictures of the safe and you said that that was actually not the case
2: right that never happened because Right after all of that happened, that was December 23rd, and we never went back to my parents' house except to move everything out of there. And I think we moved to College Station in the middle of January, maybe more towards the beginning of January. So the safe came with us, and nobody ever came to to the house out there.
1: Okay, so it, it sounds to me, I went back and reviewed some of the trial testimony and some of the reports. And it sounds like what happened was, did you guys call them and let them know that you thought you saw fingerprints and you guys took pictures of the safe? Is that right? Right. Okay. And then you guys turned those photos over to the police? Right. Okay. So that's where the confusion was. It kind of made it sound, or at least my interpretation when I was reading the transcript, uh, when Carazal was on the stand and he was being questioned about the safe. was that the? Uh, it sounded like, excuse me, when uh, Carpenter was on the stand. It sounded like they were referencing Carazal going out and taking photos because they had Carpenter analyze those photos right before the trial, finally, for fingerprints. but that's So to be clear, the police never came out and took photos of the safe. You guys as the family took the photos of the safe, and then you turned those over to the police, and then they later looked at them and said there was no fingerprints. Correct. Okay, and then from there, I guess Mike will let you go ahead and get into your questions. All right, our first question comes
3: from Emily. I wonder if Sandy has any memories of ever using a valet parking at the restaurant. Liz has said it's not the sort of thing her dad would fork out for, but I've seen reviews on the restaurant that say how annoying it is that they force you to use their valet parking. If their car was parked by valet, that could have given them access to the address papers in the car or on the GPS and access to the house keys and an hour or two to burglarize a house 10 minutes away. What are your thoughts here?
1: Well, for starters, I don't think, and Liz, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that that Los Cucos even has valet parking. I know for a fact they don't force you to use it because, Mike, when we were in Houston, you and I went there and had dinner. Yeah, and I, personally, I don't recall seeing a valet. Mm-mm, there, we definitely didn't use one, and if there was one there, I didn't notice it. Liz, do you know if they even had valet parking at that Los Cucos?
2: No, I've been there several times, and I've never seen valet parking.
1: Yeah. So, no, I, I don't think valet, it's a good thought, but I don't think that that's going to help us out because I don't believe they had valet parking at that location. And again, I absolutely know that they don't force you to use it because we didn't.
3: Ashley says, had the Milgars had any workers at the house in the months leading up to the murder? Plumbers, electricians, pest control, that kind of thing.
1: Anyone that would work for a company that could give them access to houses to scope out. Well, we know about the maid. Liz, do you know if there was any other workers, any construction? It sounds like your dad did most maintenance and things like that himself. Do you know if there was any other workers in the house?
2: Uh, No, not that I can think of, because like you said, my dad took care of everything on his own.
3: Okay.
1: Locker asks, was Sandy using her cane at Los Cucos? Do you know if your mom was using her cane when they went to dinner? It sounded to me like she only used her cane when she was having a bad day, and that happened to be kind of a good day. So do do you know the answer to that?
2: I'm not sure. I know that the usage of the cane increased as it got colder outside, but I'm not sure about that night in particular.
1: Okay.
3: Melanie says, was there any mention during the trial about when the prosecution thinks Sandy would have slept?
1: Yeah, I saw this question and and basically they're saying if you, if you listen to a lot of Colleen Barnett's interviews uh, and other people that were a part of the state's case, uh, when they interview or talk about the case, they all say the same thing. It's kind of this this theme that, that goes out through all of them, which is, well, sure, she didn't have any blood on her, and she didn't have any bloody clothing on the, on the scene or anything like that, but she had 14 or 15 hours to clean up. And so th- th- this question was regarding, if they think that they, she spent the whole 14 hours cleaning up, then when did she sleep? And I, it's a good point, but I, I think that there's their easy argument for that is just to say that she didn't, I mean, obviously you all know my opinion of the thing is that the whole idea of her staging this is ridiculous based on the evidence that we have now. But yeah, it's a good point. I mean, basically saying if she couldn't have cleaned up and not slept, so it had to be one or the other.
3: All right. Julia says, how many games of cards did Corey actually lose? Did you guys ever end up having those nachos? Any Jabberwocky sightings? In all seriousness, hope you guys had a great time at beer camp.
1: (laughs) Who's that from? That one was from Julia. Julia. Uh, So Corey lost a lot of cards. Uh, We (laughs) never did see a Jabberwocky. Right. uh, Or Academy Award winner, Nicolas Cage. Never happened. Right. You're welcome, Thomas Finch. And it uh, was the last one? Uh, we did enjoy some nachos. Corey did not wake up for his nachos. <laughs> yeah, that was a great time. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is, um, is all based off of the people that were following us along on Instagram during our beer camp vacation. And this seems like a good time to go ahead and take a quick break for an ad. <laughs>
3: Well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details heather says do we have a list of places that the melgars had been and things they might have done in the two weeks preceding the murder
1: not that i know of i mean most of the victimology that was looked into by the police which was little to nothing was just based around their events that night and they were you know and they weren't really using that information as victimology where we you know in the case summary that I sent to Jim Clemente you know, I had 6 pages on victimology on that for I mean everything that we possibly knew about it and that's because we're looking at their risk factors with them as victims in this case they didn't really do victimology they they traced the steps that night because they were looking at Sandy as a suspect I don't know you know one thing that was kind of left out of victimology it was in my uh report to Jim but we didn't really talk about it on the podcast was There was a bit of a conflict going on with a a renter. Liz, wasn't there someone who was in the middle of being evicted or something like that?
2: Uh, They were about three months behind on their rent. Yeah.
1: Was there any conflict between them and your dad or your mom about that?
2: Well, they weren't too happy when I called them and asked them what was going on and why, why it had taken them so long to catch up. You know, they tried to tell me that my dad had told them that they could live there rent free for as long as they needed. And I told them that, you know, if they didn't start putting down some money, then I was going to have to evict them because it was going to start costing us money to have them there. But I mean, I didn't get too far into it after that because they just up and left.
1: Okay. So was there any inclination that your dad had had any conflict with them other than they obviously weren't paying their rent and according to them... Your dad had told them that they could just keep living there, which sounds odd, but do you have any, is there any evidence that they had any real conflict?
2: I mean, other than that they were going to be evicted soon, no.
1: Okay. But but I guess what I'm asking is, had your dad started that process of eviction or that wasn't until after you took over?
2: I believe that he had started to look into it because, you know, it had already been three months without rent and he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have just you know let them stay there rent free he would have needed some sort of like amount of money in like good faith but no he hadn't started the process yet i had found some addendums on his desk saying that you know if the rent wasn't put into the account soon then the eviction or, uh, the eviction proceedings would be started
1: okay um other than that do you know anything that may be relevant victimology wise with your parents that they were doing in the previous 2 weeks had they traveled or anything or came into contact with anyone that that could have been concerning?
2: No, um and I remember going through my dad's phone records and the only thing that I could find was, you know, he had called somebody to I think he'd called a day laborer that he hired on a regular basis. But um I don't know what that was about or whether he had already had him over or whether he was going to have him over in the future. You know, I just saw the number on the call list, but I mean, my parents usually just, you know, stayed at home and went to church and that was about it.
1: They didn't do it. Well, I assume they didn't do a whole lot of socializing because, you know, they waited 2 weeks almost to go out for their anniversary, so they obviously weren't going out to dinner every other night.
2: Right. And I believe they had uh plans with their friends. They usually, you know, took each other out for their anniversaries, but I knew they had to I know they had to cancel those plans because my mom hadn't been feeling well. But other than that, I mean, the only places my dad really went was Home Depot and the grocery store.
1: Okay. All right, what do you got next, Mike? This next one's from Pamela.
3: If Sandy's appeal is successful and her conviction is overturned, and if the DA decides to dismiss the case, will you continue to investigate Jim's murder? And would you still cover that investigation
1: on the podcast? Absolutely, as much as we can. I mean, as, as we've said with all of our cases, and this one is no exception, at this point, now that I believe 100% this was a wrongful conviction, we are definitely fighting for Sandy Melgar. But all of these investigations are always born in fighting for justice for the victim. And this case is no exception. And, and our goal, our ultimate goal, is to figure out who killed Jim Melgar. Karen
3: has a few questions. Does a surveillance tape showing Jim at the CVS still exist? Maybe they were choosing their victims at CVS. Might there be some other customers there before they arrived that may have followed them out? And did Jim talk to anyone while at the CVS?
1: Well, unfortunately, we still don't have the surveillance videos to look at. I don't know. I, I didn't see anything in the reports that I have, uh, in the police reports that I have, that indicate that the police ever tried to track anyone down from CVS or anything like that. But, yeah, we we just don't know because until we see the video who else was there or anything else about that trip other than it was verified that he was there.
2: I also happened to go through the uh, some of the transcripts last night, and um, apparently there was no video surveillance in the parking lot. It was only inside the store.
1: Right. That was my understanding. That it was just they did only showed just Jim walking in out of the store because they couldn't verify even that your mom was with because there wasn't a camera outside because your mom didn't go in, right? It was just your dad went in.
2: Right. She she usually stayed in the car.
3: Right. Okay. Okay. Next, she says, also, in regards to cleaning up the blood afterwards, after the crime, Jim Clemente said, if you said there were a pile of towels like that, they're somewhere. And then she shows a picture of the bathtub with four rolled towels, three green, one white, stacked at the edge of the bathtub between the two liter Coke and the candle. Did you see that, Bob?
1: Yeah. And that's what we get into, obviously... The cliffhanger there wasn't much of a cliffhanger for those of you that have been following us because we know that there was, in fact, two towels, a white one and a green one, found in the bathtub. And so that's where we're going to kind of pick up our conversation this week with Jim. But to me, it was, you know, it, it seemed like Jim and I at the time were on kind of different trains of thought because I was, you know, looking at clearly someone cleared, cleaned up there. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for me when he said, well, if you told me there was, a pile of towels somewhere, then then yeah, that makes sense. But if not, it occurred to me, he didn't know that the towels were in the tub. But yeah, so so that was, I think that what they're pointing out there was that there clearly was towels. And I agree. So the towels in the tub were green and white. There's a green and white towel in the water in the tub. Those towels were easily accessible. They weren't stored away in a closet somewhere or anything like that. They just kept a stack of them right there, at the bathtub. So easy enough for somebody just to grab two of them and toss them in there to someone to clean up with.
3: Kelly says, who bought the gun and why? I believe Bob said in an earlier episode that it was Jamie's and he bought it after the assault on Liz. But Liz said it was her mother's from when she was a late teen and when she worked at a restaurant and
1: had to take cash to the bank. What do we know about the gun, Bob? I saw a couple people posting this week that I had said that the gun was purchased after Liz was raped. I don't know where, if I said that, I don't know when or where, because I've never thought that. All I know that is that Jim has owned the gun for a long time, and most of the information I have about the gun comes from Sandy's interview where she just talked about it, that he kept it loaded, he wouldn't keep it in the safe. But no, I if I said that, I misspoke, and I don't know when or where I ever said that. Uh, but But Liz, you know where the gun actually came from and how long they owned it.
2: Yeah, my mom said she bought it when she was... I'm gonna guess somewhere between the ages of eighteen and twenty. Uh, but she was working in a in a restaurant as a waitress and it was it was her job to take the money to the bank so she felt safer with a gun. And then when they became Jehovah's Witness, I know that a lot of people have asked about that because Jehovah's Witnesses don't don't normally have guns, but they just never got rid of it because they were worried about it not transferring properly and then it being used in the commission of a crime and then being held accountable.
1: Okay, so he's always hung on to it. And it sounds like your dad did want to use it for protection based on your mom's interview that he wouldn't keep it in the safe because he wanted it where he could get to it if he needed to. Right. Bridget says, do you personally think maybe instead of a
3: seizure, Sandy could have been hit over the head and then drugged to keep her out of it? They could have easily crushed
1: up a pill, she had plenty, and put it
3: in her mouth to make sure she didn't remember anything or was at least disoriented.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, it, we can't say that that's not possible, mostly because we don't, you know, there was no, obviously there was not an autopsy on Sandy. She was alive. I don't think they ever did any blood draws or anything like that on her. Seems unlikely to me that they would go through the trouble of tying her up and barricading her in the closet and then force feeding her a pill on top of it. But I don't know. I, I don't think there's any way for us to know or prove that.
0: With the Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: Mitch says, I wonder why Sandy was left alive. They didn't know she wouldn't have any recollection of that night, so they just left a witness who could have identified them. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think that that tells us a lot about the profile of the offenders that committed this crime. The fact that Sandy was left alive could mean a number of things. It could mean that the offenders were wearing masks, which is certainly not out of the question. If you're talking about a strong-arm robbery or home invasion, for them to come in wearing gloves and masks, it doesn't take a genius to do those couple of things and avoid yourself from being identified, or it could also mean that the offenders do not have a known personal relationship to the victims. Meaning, if if this was someone that the victims knew, if this was someone that Sandy knew personally, and they weren't wearing a mask, there would definitely be a concern that she's going to identify them, because they have no way of knowing that she was going to have a seizure, lose her memory, wouldn't remember any of this. So I, I think it indicates one of those two things, is that either They don't have any kind of connection or known personal relationship to the Melgars, or they were wearing a mask and gloves, or a combination of both of those. Liz says, Bob seemed to pretty quickly
3: dismiss the other risk factors for Jim related to his job and work. Just curious how well this has been ruled out. I've heard it touched on in an earlier episode, but nothing in depth.
1: Yeah, it's not that we're ignoring any victimology or risk factors that involve Jim's work. It's just that you know, other than the little bit we just discussed earlier with the renters, just nothing's been identified. We've just never identified. No one has come forward from the school, any of Jim's coworkers, And, of course, this was the job of the detectives back then to search for issues like this in Jim's background and victimology. And I don't know if they ever did or didn't, based on the reports we have right now. I've never seen anything along those lines because they were never looking for anyone but Sandy. And that's the biggest frustration with anything we're trying to do in this case is that the original detectives on the case never bothered to seek or search out any other suspects that could have been involved in this. But as far as we know, uh, I have spoken personally to several friends of the Melgars and Jim personally, and I get the same thing from all of them, that he was a very kind man, very patient, got along with everyone, and they can't imagine anyone having a problem with Jim. That's all I've gotten from discussions I've had with friends and family of the Melgars. Don has a theory here. He says, I think the drink
3: is on the treadmill because that is where Jim realized there was someone in the house. He set his drink
1: down and went to the closet for the gun. What do you think about Don's theory, Bob? I think that the drink on the treadmill definitely indicates that something changed right there for Jim. Uh, you know, so But it, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's when he knew someone was in the house. It could have been any number of things. So, for example, he was wearing Sandy's slippers. When he when he went out to get the dogs and the slippers were found right next to his body, Liz, do you know where the slippers were kept? Where he got those slippers from?
2: I have no idea.
1: Because that was one thing I thought of was maybe he gets out of the tub, wraps himself in his towel, steps out. The slippers are right there by the treadmill. Sets his drink down, puts the slippers on, and goes. It's possible that uh, what Don's saying here is true that the that he heard something and put the uh, put the glass down. But it, to me, the dogs still factor back in. I keep coming back to the two dogs that were locked into the closet. If he had went immediately for the gun, then who did the offenders take some of the dogs and put them in a the closet? It's just, I don't know the answer to it. It's a good thought. I definitely think for some reason right there, he decided to go ahead and set the glass down. It could also be, remember, Sandy said that the dogs tend to escape. So maybe he's on his way out to go let the dogs in because they're barking outside. And two of the dogs come running up to him in the bedroom. He sets his glass down, picks the dogs up, puts them into the the office, and then goes to the back door to get the other two, and that's where he's assaulted. Maybe the dogs were scared because someone was breaking into the back door or somebody came in because it was unlocked. There's a lot of scenarios there. Uh, but I just it doesn't make sense to me personally at this moment that he knew someone was in the house, he set his glass down and went for the gun. Just the the other factors in the crime scene don't don't add up to that to me. Because he didn't go for the gun and grab for it till after he was already bloody. Remember that, because he's got bloody handprints in front of the gun.
2: So my mom always either wore socks or slippers in the house, just because of her circulatory issues. So I imagine that she wore them across the bathroom floor to the uh, to the tub.
1: Well, and I think so. I think you're probably right too. Only because Sandy said she knew that Jim put them on. So I always assumed that he put them on there at the tub before he walked out. Exactly. But I think the dogs are something that is a a distinct possibility. I mean, Liz, you know, how often was it that the dogs would escape from their their area there in the breakfast nook?
2: I don't really know how often that they would escape. I know it was a constant struggle to keep them there, but I couldn't tell you how many times in a day.
1: It was all the dogs that would escape or just some of them?
2: It was just the puppies.
1: Just the puppies. Okay, so the older dogs would stay back there when they were supposed to. Right. Okay.
3: Okay, that's going to do it for questions this week. Uh, but we do have a couple things we want to cover before we close out, Bob. Right.
1: right. First of all, Liz, thank you for joining us today. We're having a little bit of audio issues, so I'm going to go ahead and let you go now so we can finish our closeout today without uh, having your sitter have to watch your child and your dog or your pots and pans or whatever's clanging around back there anymore while <laughs> while we're trying to finish the recording.
2: I'm just going to start calling you over and over <laughs> while you're recording. That's perfect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but thank you so much, Liz. We're going to go ahead and let you go while we wrap this up.
2: All right. Take care.
1: So before we close up, first of all, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. And so what we're asking everybody to do is could you please complete a short survey for us at Wondery.com slash survey. That's Wondery.com slash survey. And you'll have the opportunity to tell us what you like about the show and what you'd love to hear in future episodes. The survey only takes a few minutes and we'd really appreciate it. Also, I want to let you know that when you listen to Sunday's episode, this is the big one, and it's very, very interesting. This is Jim Clemente finally giving us his profile on the Melgar murder, and it's fascinating, the information that he comes up with. You're also going to hear kind of a long discussion between him and I about the white shirt that was found in the bathtub. When Jim's looking at the photo with the shirt, he sees a lot of, like, circles and rings on it, we have we have probably a three-, four-minute discussion about whether those are bloodstains or whether they were marks from the CSI. I just wanted to point out to you guys ahead of time, before you listen, that we have determined those are marks from the CSI. Carpenter testified that he marked the spots that reacted to the reagent for blood with an orange highlighter, and that's what all those marks are. So you're going to hear us trying to figure that out. Just want to let you know we have figured it out since then. We recorded that interview a few weeks ago. And then I also wanted to remind everybody we are now one week away Uh, today. This is dropping on Friday the 23rd. Next Friday the 30th, I'm going to be taking off and heading to the UK for our tour. The Newcastle and London events have sold lots and lots of seats. There may be a few left available, but wanted to let you know one more time, there was a lot of requests for Manchester and Edinburgh in Scotland. There are still plenty of seats available for those two events. So if you haven't already done so, and you'd like to come meet us in the UK, we're going to be in Edinburgh, Scotland, and we're also going to be in Manchester, and there's still plenty of seats available to both of those events. I believe the tickets are only 25 bucks a piece. So please get those in. You can buy your tickets at justkillintime.org. That's justkillintime.org. You have a few more days to get in there and get your tickets to the Manchester and the Edinburgh events in the UK. And keep in mind, these are going to be, I'm going to give about an hour long speech, but it's going to be a long meet and greet. I have told the organizers that as long as I'm there, I don't ever get to hang out with my UK fans. So we have secured the venues, which are breweries and bars, just for our people for the entire night. So after I give my presentation, Becky's going to be there with me. We're going to hang out and have a few pints with all of you. So hopefully we'll see lots and lots of you there. Again, that's just killin'time.org, where you can get your tickets for Edinburgh and Manchester. And I believe there still are a few left for London and Newcastle. But I know that there's plenty left for those other two. And lastly, speaking of the 30th, next Friday, one week from today, ABC's 2020 is featuring a full-length hour episode on the Melgar case. In this episode, you're going to hear interviews from, of course, Colleen Barnett, Celestina Rossi, who did the blood spatter analysis, the jury foreman that hasn't interviewed on our show yet, but we've heard a little bit from, the defense attorneys Mac and Allison Seacrest, and yours truly will be on this episode. Some of you may have been wondering why I was out in L.A. a couple weeks ago and our schedule got really messed up. It's because 2020 approached us and wanted us to participate in this investigation into this case on the 2020 episode. And so I ended up spending about four days, a few days here at home, and then two or three days out in L.A. recording with them. So so hopefully it's going to be a great production based on my interactions with the producers. It sounds like their goal is to tell the full and the whole truth. So make sure you check that out. There could be listening parties all around the country. Maybe some people could do some Facebook Live on the fan page. I'm hoping that I'm not on an airplane on my way to the U.K. because I don't know when our plane tickets are at the exact time it's airing. But that'll be next Friday night, the 30th, 2020, on The Melgar Case. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of createdintandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, truthandjusticepod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Liz? I can't hear you. What's she doing now? I'm getting that. Liz, can you hear me? Liz.
3: What the fuck?
1: No. Liz. Elizabeth. Elizabeth Rose. What the fuck are you doing? Did she shut her shit off? Hello. Oh, she's fing killing me. She hung the phone up. That's what it was. Damn it. You're such an asshole. Please, please Elizabeth. Clap two times. <laughs> oh, those were some good ones. You just you took some clapping lessons? <laughs> so I think we could probably have a mix-max of questions. So I think we probably have a mixed max yeah. So I think we probably have a mixed match of questions. So I think we probably have a wide variety of questions. Hey Liz, any chance you could get that dog to bark louder?
3: <laughs> yeah, I can't.
2: Do you there. want me
1: to Mother <laughs> f- Liz God, please stop it. Please, the dog. Liz, please? Are you there? Liz? I'm here. Can you please make the dog stop? <laughs> which is made with premium cotton called Pima, which I probably pronounced wrong. And then five seconds of silence, and then back to the content. Okay, Liz, we're back on. We're back on, sister. Ready to rock and roll? mother? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Liz. <laughs>
2: I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything. You- I'm sitting in my room quietly. Someone
1: is banging a pot or a pan on the ground. <laughs> okay, let me go. <laughs> What are you doing? <laughs> uh, Liz? Liz? Please don't close. Liz, can you hear me? Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. If she shut the... (laughs) Please tell me. Please tell me she didn't shut off her. It's uploading. It's uploading. It's uploading. Okay. Here we go. Uh, And I can jump back to this to finish this up. Here we go. Much better now. I'm even going to... Could you hand me my headphone back, Mike? This is awful. (laughs) Could you hand me my headphone back? You're you're, you're what? My headphone jack.
3: Oh, oh, you're jack.
1: Please, Mike. No! My headphone jack! I need my headphone jack back. Please! Just go. Go.
3: <laughs> oh, mother... Oh, man. I'm so unhappy right now.
0: I know.
1: You have a lot of work to do in so front of you. so
3: unhappy.
0: The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.